This is the Fixed Plasm podcast, dissecting fiction for role-playing inspiration. And I'm Ralph. Okay, for the next three episodes, I'm going to talk about Clive Barker's Magica. It was always clear that this was going to be more than a one-episode endeavour. My copy of the Magica is 1,136 pages and 62 chapters long. In fact, Magica has been printed in the past in two much more manageable volumes, The Fifth Dominion and The Reconciliation. Rereading Magica, I'm struggling to find where they would have made the cut between the two volumes, assuming that they were of similar length. I found the natural cut points at around 200 pages in, then 500 pages after that, which means that the first episode, I'm just going to talk about the first 17 chapters and 200 pages, and the second and third are going to be more than twice as long in terms of page count, but truth be told, these later parts of the book could have done with some very heavy editing to bring them in at half their length. Barker's prose is wonderful throughout, but the plotting becomes glacial towards the end, and confusing in my view. So, the first books I really loved when I was growing up were Clive Barker's fantasies. Weave World and The Great and Secret Show, for example. And this was the 80s before urban fantasy was really a thing. At the time, we were playing Warhammer 40k mashed into an RPG using the Warhammer Fantasy roleplay rules. So that was the original Rogue Trader miniature rules, which I think are massively underrated. And Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I've always felt that Weave World and The Great and Secret Show and Imagica are doing a similar duty. Uh, They present a hidden occult world complete with underlying magical theory. And you you get the same also in Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions, which I think is underrated and I, I think is quite terrific. Weave World becomes a bit of a mess halfway through as it degenerates into horror but it made a big impression, as did The Great and Secret Show, which has some brilliant language to describe magic. For example, the nuncio is an alchemical distillation which magically evolves and elevates the things it contacts. And magic is performed by suits, as in petitions. The two different dimensions are the cosm and metacosm, and the space between those is quiddity, which is a sort of primordial ocean of potential energy. And I was amazed to find that Imagica, which I read much later, is only separated from The Great and Secret Show by one year. And it feels very much like a retread of The Great and Secret Show, with the notion of separated worlds and crossing a metaphorical void through magic. But it's also the inverse of that book, in that where the gate to quiddity is only open towards the end in Great Secret Show, Magica is more of a, a journey, a, a magical road trip, as it were, that, that penetrates into the other worlds. Now, Barker's also written other books where his protagonists penetrate into other worlds. One of them, notably, is um, his YA series, The Aberat, which uh, he's only published three out of five, those are really spectacular, and they, they are, if you get the hardback versions there, they all have his illustrations. And each of the islands in a, an archipelago setting are named about a different hour of the day. But it's, it is still all about a young girl discovering a path from the boring Midwestern town, Chicken Town, I think it is, where she lives, and go, going into this magical world where she meets all these weird and wonderful characters who um, are both... Uh, magically aware but also physically very different they have very specific features and this is a thing that uh i want to talk about later is the the physiology generally of barker's barker's monsters if you've seen the film nightbreed and certainly if you read the book cabal you'll know that the whole concept of midian is it's where 
the monsters go to be accepted because no one else will, will accept them. And essentially, the monsters are human underneath, but outwardly, they're, they're freakish and horrifying. Anyway, probably getting ahead of myself a bit. So, as always, I'm going to cover the synopsis, then talk about themes, and finally, role-playing inspiration. And since this is going to be a three-parter, I'm going to do the synopsis of the, page, the sections I've read, and then talk about the themes specifically in those. So, in some cases, I'm going to park some themes for later discussion, because they become more prominent later on. Without further ado, I'm going to talk about the first 17 chapters of Imagica, all of which take place on our Earth, the Fifth Dominion. The very first chapter starts with a passage about the pivotal teaching of Pluthero Quexos, the most celebrated dramatist in the Second Dominion. Their assertion is that in any fiction, no matter how ambitious its scope or profound its theme, there was only ever room for three players. Between warring kings, a peacemaker, between adoring spouses, a seducer, or a child, between twins, the spirit of the womb, between lovers, death. Great numbers might drift through the drama, of course. Thousands, in fact. But they could only ever be phantoms, agents, or on rare occasions, reflections of the three real and self-willed beings who stood at the, the centre. And even this essential trio would not remain intact, or so he talked. It would steadily diminish as the story unfolded, three becoming two, two becoming one, until the stage was left deserted. Now, I'm mentioning that passage because as a central concept. There are three main protagonists we need to take notice of, and a lot of side players, side characters. But most notably, everything is about the relationships between these characters. And there's a, a later comment in uh, that I'll get to in the next episode, where we actually talk about the way the world adapts to these lovers. But for now, uh, our three protagonists, therefore, are Gentle, who's an artist and a philanderer and a forger, Jude, whose Gentle's former lover, the subject of fascination and, and obsession bore many men, and Piopa, uh, a mystic of the Yotemic tribe, possessing aspects of both male and female, and going with the pronoun id. And this first part comprises two parallel narratives, one being the personal adventures of these three characters as they navigate a landscape of esoteric science and underground magic and all the myths surrounding the wider magical universe, and the Tabula Rasa, which is a secret society dedicated to keeping Earth, the Fifth Dominion, free of magic, something they achieve by hoarding and securing all these magical artefacts and grimoires that they can get their hands on, and performing clandestine assassinations of people who know too much. But it's assassination of a different sort that kicks everything off. Charles Estabrook is the estranged lover of Jude, Judith, and is so infatuated and jealous that he conspires to have her murdered. To this end, he's introduced to Piopa, and I'll call them Pi from now on, it'll be easier, via an intermediary named Chant. Pi presents as a dreadlock black male, though slightly androgynous, and they're living in a caravan with their adoptive family, a wife and a child. From here, Pi connects with Judith, following her to Manhattan where she's visiting and making the first attempt on her life. And this fails and results in it being run over by a car and then impossibly getting up and running away despite horrific injuries. And this exposes Judith to the impossible supernatural world. Now, meanwhile, we're introduced to Gentle, who is immediately characterised as a, a liar, a former forger, a womanizer, as uh, he's encouraged by a recent conquest to slit his own throat. Now, Estabrook is seemingly regretted his actions almost immediately, and he enlists Gentle to go to New York and protect Judith, as he's unable to call off the hit. His intermediately chant has vanished after leaving him an ominous and strange letter, 
Gentle goes to New York after some debate and arrives in time to thwart the second attempt on Jude's life. Now, Pi, it seems, can change its appearance at will. It uses shape-shifting abilities to gain entry to Judith's apartment building by appearing as a familiar face to the concierge. There's a fight in Judith's apartment. Gentle arrives in the nick of time and Pi is forced to flee. Judith, despite the second attempt on her life, doesn't want Gentle there and there's a long history between them. And he returns to his hotel room, observed by Pi, who refers to him as its maestro. It's worth noting that whilst Pi is clearly supernatural, Gentle and Judith, whilst appearing relatively mundane, share a common trait of not being able to recall their pasts. Uh, For Gentle, it's anything earlier than 10 years past, I think. So we have this shared trait and Pi's history with Gentle, which the latter can't remember, marking the three of them out for quite an involved and entangled shared backstory. Okay, Gentle gets back to his hotel room and is apparently visited by Judith, who has changed her mind about company, and they proceed to have sex. Partway through, Gentle's phone rings, and surprise, it's Judith on the other end. What's going on? This shatters the illusion, and Gentle realises he's being intimate with the mystiff, who, whilst now presenting as a male again, certainly has or recently had a female physiology. Naturally, Gentle is surprised and upset, not least because the last time they saw each other, the mystiff was trying to kill Judith but it's not here to kill him. In its words, it's come to heal him. Unsurprisingly, it flees the scene once once again, leaving Gentle confused and apprehensive. Okay, while this is going on, we have a second plot strand concerning the Tabula Rasa, which starts with Chant, the mysterious intermediary between Pi and Estabrook. Chant senses that something is stalking him, pens a quick note of warning to Estabrook, and sets off for an abandoned building in London. His fear is confirmed as he's pursued by one of the main villains, Dowd, and their demonic servants from the Inn Ovo, the Voiders. Dowd uses a sort of flesh-eating might to completely unmake Chance slowly and painfully, torturing him and extracting his knowledge. Both of them are party to esoteric knowledge that we, the reader, have yet to learn about, such as Hapax Mendius the Unbeheld, the god of the wider cosmos known as the Imagica. So we know that both are on Earth from elsewhere, and crucially, Chant blabs about the mystiff it found for Estabrook. Dowd, as it happens, is enthralled to Oscar Godolphin's family, and has been for the last couple of centuries. Godolphin is a mover and shaker in the tabula rasa, whilst also being a traveller between worlds, which means he's one of the occult scholars that his secret society wants to stamp out, something they're managing to do by destroying any cults which become enlightened enough. Of, of course, these cults exist on the fringes of society. They don't really have any authority they can attend to for protection. The Tabula Rasa can largely do what it wants as long as it has enough resources to fly under the radar of uh, mundane authorities. But Godolphin knows that his society is onto him, and he contrives a bit of theatre to convince them that he's still on their side by apparently murdering Dowd in front of the other board members, right there in their base in Roxburgh Tower. Dowd doesn't bleed, but instead seeps a brackish fluid, and its organs are clearly non-human, despite its outward appearance. And the society is convinced. Later, Godolphin resurrects Dowd with the correct rituals, and apparently Dowd's kind are famously hard to kill. But Dowd is outraged by the humiliation of being suddenly murdered, and insists on compensation. He wants to kill the mystiff himself. Meanwhile, our three protagonists have all arrived separately back in the UK. 
Gentle has had time to digest Chant's letter, which contains more semi-religious speech concerning the unbeheld. He goes back to Estabrook to find a way to contact Pi, who obliges him with the location of their meeting. Estabrook is a mess, by the way, and tries to contact Judith, but she's having none of it. Reasonable, since he called a hit on her. She makes her way to their shared home to pack her things, and in doing so, finds a number of parcels of what can only be described as otherworldly or magical artefacts. One of which is a fist-sized blue stone. She calls it the blue eye. She takes this as well, and later, when she plays with it, and she can't seem to put it down, it rubs off its colour on her skin, and then it gives her a vision of Roxburgh Tower, including the stacks and stacks of quarantined magical objects in its basement, and a mummified woman trapped in a cell beneath the tower. Now that she's fully awakened to the magical world, she sets off to find Gentle once more. Gentle, meanwhile, has found the part where Pi's caravan is moored, and so has Dowd and his voiders who set fire to the whole place. An action scene proceeds. Gentle witnesses firsthand the alien voiders and finds Pi, but Pi's adopted family both perish in the blaze. Away from the carnage, Pi fills Gentle in on the missing facts that he and we have been waiting for. Read the Magica, Hapax Mendius the Unbeheld, the God of the World, the other dominions and the innova that separates the reconciled four dominions with this, the fifth dominion. They resolve to travel to the other world and begin their magical road trip, which we'll discuss in the next episode. And what about Jude? She arrives just in time to see them portal into the other world, and she's absolutely furious about being left behind. Reasonably, I think. She resolves to get to the other dominions any way she can, and her last words in chapter 17 are that the past has been written by men, but the future is a woman. And that's a theme we'll also discuss in a later episode. I've lost over a few things like uh, Gentle's relationship with Clem and Taylor, and Judith has a relationship with them as well. Uh, I don't want to make light of them because they cover some fairly important and human background that the characters have, but uh, they're incidental to the overall plot, although Taylor does have a heart-to-heart with Gentle on his deathbed. What I think I'd like to talk about in the themes now is about urban fantasy. I always thought this genre was a recent invention. I understand that the term actually goes back into the earlier 20th century. We know the markers of what an urban fantasy is. You have your secret societies and hidden magical subcultures, non-human protagonists, often passing for human, and with mythological identities like vampires, werewolves, etc. And it's a primary world. So it's our world, but with a separate magical underground. Now, in some definitions, low fantasy is used for primary world fantasy fiction, as distinct from high fantasy, which covers inventive secondary worlds. I discovered this distinction when I was looking into The Land of Last by Jonathan Carroll, and I found the, uh, that the Wikipedia page called it low fantasy. I think a lot of fantasy fans draw a completely different line between low and high fantasy. The latter is your whimsical and legendary Tolkien, Dunsany, Edison, maybe a bit of Moorcock, whilst the former is the down-to-earth style of Fritz Lieber, Sun Vance, Dying Earth in particular, and modern authors like George R. R. Martin, despite the scope uh, of Martin's work, it's very down-to-earth, um, Joe Abercrombie, which I've read very little of, and Scott Lynch, and various others. Now, genre exists for our convenience to group things together and separate them from other things so we can say what we like and what we don't. Uh, And it tends to be subjective and the subject of arguments. 
But all I can say is uh, about Barker is Weave World, Cabal, and The Great and Secret Show set my expectations for modern primary world fantasy in the late 80s. Now, this was before Vampire and the World of Darkness became a thing. And the protagonists aren't monsters um, in most cases, at least they, they start out as human. They do transform. For example, uh, Boone in Cabal gets bitten by Pelequin. In fact, it's a lot closer to Call of Cthulhu than World of Darkness. And the problem I had with Vampire is demonstrated in the jump between the first and second editions. So I'm going to rant for a bit. Um, when I read the first edition, it blew me away. It was all about becoming an outsider to the real world and still having these ties to family and principles and your humanity. Um, when it came to second edition, and the way most people actually played Vampire and other games, in LARPs, for example, it was all about being fanged superheroes and being insiders to a secret institution rather than being outsiders to the real world. And don't get me wrong, and poncing around in frilly shirts and corsets with mental cigarettes and dental prosthetics that make you lisp was great fun, and it got you laid. Uh, but this kind of approach to urban fantasy lays bare everything that should be an exciting mystery. Secret societies are completely banal once you view them from the inside, in my humble opinion. The tabula rasa is very much a one-trick pony. It's a bunch of rich folks holed up in a secret tower hunting down and killing cultists. But, so, but it's not just that it's boring. It's that suddenly your character's identity is defined by which faction you belong to and which species of magical thing you are. It's this collective identity that is, ironically, more dehumanising than the actual monstrous transformation your character should be going through. I saw a lot of players buy into this, and I swear, in one lot, we had a vampire conclave discussing what to do about some magical mystery that had crept into the Princeton. And someone piped up, has anyone discussed this with the local mages? And it's like, yeah, like they're unionised and in the yellow pages, for fuck's sake. You know, wouldn't it be weird if the whole vampire jihad was about vampire second edition neoliberalism versus vampire first edition libertarianism? Yeah, all right. Joking aside, I think that White Wolf systematically destroyed everything worthwhile in its urban fantasy by churning out the meta plot and eradicating all mystery. But worse than that, it prioritizes the collective identity of different factions over individual identity. And this is something that's infected the urban fantasy genre and indeed all stripes of fantasy where we have lots of different factions and characters that are identified by belonging. So, Barker set my expectations about modern primary world fantasy in two very obvious ways. First, the mystery remains a mystery. It should emerge with the story. There will be points when you get an information dump but when that happens, it's not polluted with tangential facts, the way that a vampire player's knowledge of the canon messes with the emergent mystery by throwing up irrelevant out-of-character knowledge. Second, stories are about individuals, and in Magicka, this principle is stated from the outset. There are three people who matter here, that's Judith, Gentle and Pie. Everything else, all the secret societies, the magic, the fabulous locations, the secondary characters are all subordinate to these characters and their arcs. And we know this, 
A lot of modern games have formalized this as focusing on individual development, asking point of view questions and telling us to be fans of the PCs. It's great progress, but a lot of traditional designs work directly against this. Now, looking back, I'm trying to think of the kinds of primary world modern fantasy that are like Barker. And I've come to the conclusion that in a lot of cases, they're best represented by female YA authors. Uh, Diana Wynne-Jones, for example. Margaret Mahi, an even better example. They're not touchstones from my teens, unfortunately, but they are authors which I read as an adult and admired greatly. And the formula tends to go like this. We have a protagonist with real-world concerns, family and friends in a situation, and somehow they contact the magical world at which point they step over the threshold and gradually penetrate the magical world, but remaining individuals with human concerns. I don't know what modern equivalents there are to these authors to stand against the like of Cassandra Clare or Charlene Harris or Jim Butcher, fucking Jim Butcher, who are basically pushing very similar ready assembled worlds. If you've got some recommendations, I'd love to hear them. All right, let's talk about role-playing games. I want to talk about keeping urban fantasy new and interesting, fresh, if you like. Um, so before I get to that, I should mention that the good friends of Jackson Elias recently released their episode on keeping Call of Cthulhu fresh. Um, that's worth a listen. I expect there may be a bit of overlap in what I say. Also, um, I recorded this segment after the rest of this episode, so if I repeat myself a bit, sorry about that. Okay, let's consider the broad genre of modern fantasy stroke horror. At one end of the spectrum, we have completely ordinary people who have somehow crossed over into a, a magical world that exists within or next to our own. Um, call them investigators, call them curious, so Alice in Wonderland or the mortal playbook in Monster Hearts. Um, perhaps they or something near to them has been abducted, say uh, Stranger Things. And at the other end of the spectrum, we have decidedly not ordinary characters who, again, interact with this magical world. And they may be enlightened, they could be inhuman, they could be hunters. Um, but the common ground between these two extremes is a real primary world with a secret world inside. And whether that's, that's another universe, uh, whether that's another location in our universe, a sort of mirror or upside down dimension... Um, a pocket universe next to it or whatever. Um, now, just one thing, I'm intentionally excluding superhero fiction, even though it ticks a lot of those boxes. Um, the key thing about superheroes is they are visible to the world, uh, even if what they do is out of sight and happens in other dimensions, etc. Um, let's break those categories down. Uh, and bear in mind, these are extremes. The first category is any kind of supernatural investigation, for example, Call of Cthulhu, which is a cosmic horror threat. Um, Chill, which is more of a traditional supernatural investigation. Um, and Conspiracy X, which is more like uh, alien invasions. And, you know, there's going to be crossover between those, definitely. But this is the common thing. The threat nearly always has no humanity. The investigators have no emotional connection to the horror itself. Now, it's, it's possible that this horror is personified by humans who are either possessed or manipulated by this power, and they will be kind of intermediaries between the unimaginable power and the human investigators. For example, um, the Cancer Man in X-Files, or human sorcerers in Call of Cthulhu. 
And those are, those are individuals doing someone else's bidding and they should be getting something out of it. Could be power, could be they're being blackmailed or something they love is being held hostage, so they must do it. Um, but it, it's still an investigation and typically the investigators have a personal reason for following the mystery. And that reason will also provide the end conditions. And in the course of the investigation, the investigators are going to be crossing the boundary into the other world with some regularity. Uh, and that crossing should have some effect on them. In Call of Cthulhu, it's sanity. In my Department V game, it was exposure, which is a sort of reverse humanity, where the more you came into contact with magic, the more you could see the magical world. And I guess in retrospect, that's a lot like being hardened to trauma in unknown armies, except it's the magical world that you become unfazed by. Now let's consider the second case, where you're playing the monster or mage or fairy, so you're on the other side of the looking glass. The crucial difference from investigation is you're actually looking for conversation and alliances on the other side. You're going to regard the other monsters with a certain degree of humanity, and they're your peers, even if they're antagonists. Now, this doesn't stop the sequel Magical Underground from having its own boogeyman. The two boogeymen in Imagica are the Tabula Rasa, which takes on the mantle of mortal hunters, and Hapax Mendius, the Imagica's god, which is this distant, alien and wrathful entity. Um, in Vampire, you have the Inquisition doing the former duty, and a combination of the Sabbat and the Antediluvians doing the latter. In Mage, you have Technocrats and Mephandi. Almost as if White Wolf had tipexed over one name and scrawled in a different one, just in time to bang out a few copies of their air quotes new game for Gen Con. Um, but you can pick out the same examples from Nephilim or I'm sure a lot of other urban fantasy games that I haven't read. Uh, and this goes back to my earlier comment that once you're inside the vampire hierarchy, things are utterly boring. The reason that they're boring is there's rarely anything surprising about them. Investigative games have the same problem as well, in that players are familiar with the Cthulhu mythos. Uh, and whilst those players can be great at suspending disbelief, it's not really frightening. I don't get scared by cosmic horror, partly because I have no emotional stake in what affects my beliefs. And I don't have an emotional stake in the structures and the hierarchies and comedy hats that make up the esoteric underground du jour. Um, but here is my point. If you want to keep things fresh, I think you have to look at what your characters actually have an emotional stake in. That's going to be other characters and the people that you view as human who are connected to those characters, even villains. Now, you can't really form an emotional attachment to Shabnigarath because it's too abstract and also because it never returns your calls and forgets your birthday. You can certainly form a connection or at least empathise with the Dark Sorcerer who has tapped into this alien power for personal gain. For me, that's where the horror lies because there but for the grace of God or, or the hand of fate is a path that your PC could easily be walking down. And this puts me in mind of something on the side. Back in my 20s, I got sucked into an evangelical Christian church. It didn't last long. But when I came down, I chatted to friends about it and why these other people were so desperate for me to believe them. And the way it was put to me was, if you saw someone blindfolded and walking towards a cliff, i.e. damnation, wouldn't you use any argument you could to get them to take the blindfold off? Now, I like to think that Christians, not the organisations, but the individuals, are good people and they spread the message with the very best of intentions, meaning they can empathise with people going down the wrong path. 
okay, aside done with, back to keeping things fresh. Um, I think I would say any amount of paint by numbers, vampire hierarchy or cosmic horror can be forgiven where there's great drama. And that drama is going to be fueled by a sense of personal stake in whatever happens and the uncertainty of whether it's going to happen or not. But you can say that about all fiction. The question becomes, what levers do you have in this modern fantasy that you can use to get that effect? And I think a lot of it comes down to crossing the boundaries between worlds. So so think about this. Um, there's, there's kind of an investigation. There's this delicious point just before your investigators step over the threshold. No one knows what's going to happen. And there are hints and motifs of weirdness and the, the not quite right and things that don't make sense. But then the investigators get both feet over the threshold and suddenly they don't look back and they're following the white rabbit. And, and the problem we have is that we rarely have anything pulling them back towards home. Anyone ordinary reminding them that their investigation is coming at a cost. And it's even worse in urban fantasy. How many times are we told of the consequences of revealing the monstrous society to the real world? And, and how often do these consequences actually get inflicted? A lot of urban fantasy actually cops out with a sort of that there's a kind of mist or shroud or veil that the mortals can't see through. And so the monsters can bod about with impunity. And again, when the players cross the threshold, it tends to be one way. Your vampires don't look back. The old relationships they had in the human world get completely displaced by the new ones they form in the monstrous world. And I, I think this ultimately, if you... If you want to make sure that the origin story in the human world stays in frame, it has to be worthwhile from the outset. I think that's obvious. Uh, the thing is, we've always had that tool to make it happen. Way back in Vampire, when we had the prelude, some of my best times running Vampire were preluding the characters, which kind of says a lot, really. It's kind of like Peter Cook saying that his career went downhill after the Tarzan sketch. Um... I'd say you should only have one thing that ties the character back to the non-adventuring life, uh, because otherwise you'll lose focus, you'll have too many people going on. But if you have one strong thing that ties them back to their earlier life, you can bring it back. Uh, you don't need a system to make that happen. Although... If you were going to incentivize a PC getting in touch with their own life, giving them a reward, uh, recovering emotional fatigue, for example, might be a way of achieving that. Um, or I guess you could punish them for letting their human relationships wither. Um, so you tie their humanity to those relationships. If those relationships atrophy, so does their humanity. Final point on this. You can accept a totally derivative magical world when the human agency interacting with that world is interesting. So, and I'm, I'm thinking about the whole premise for the human side. For example, Knight's Black Agents. Fantastic high concept. Um, arguably, it's actually mashing up two completely derivative genres, but it, in doing so, it achieves something that is quite exciting. Although, some of us did that 20 years ago. Don't move, you're surrounded by armed bastards. I know exactly when I ran my campaign of Department V. It was 1998 because it was the same time the series Ultraviolet appeared on Channel 4. 
That's got a pre-Luther Idris Elba, a pre-Pirates of the Caribbean Jack Davenport, Susanna Harker, awesome, and Stephen Moyer, who was playing a vampire, and he obviously did it so well that he ended up playing Bill Compton in True Blood. It only ran for six episodes. I thought it was terrific. Uh, Unfortunately, I then had to convince my players that I'd had the idea for Department V before Ultraviolet was broadcast. Um, Well, not really. But the original high concept was, what if the Sweeney or the professionals hunted vampires? So it was men in brown corduroy, and that was the way I sold it. And it was inspired by two things. One, I was well into Grant Morrison's Invisibles. In fact, I'd run a campaign of Invisibles uh, using Mage, as it happened beforehand. So I ripped off Division X, who briefly appeared in issue 25. And the other thing is I was inspired by were the adverts for the Nissan Almira. You're Shut up. Not very nice. Anyway, um, I was pleased about how it turned out. The formula seemed to work. Um, the PCs' relationships were three-dimensional and had nothing to do with the magical landscape. They they were believable characters with their own individual identity, even those that were taken from outrageous stereotypes like Jack Regan. And part of this was because I had terrific players, and they got the joke and they played into the expectations of the genre. The first conscious decision I was making was nothing that is known as World of Darkness canon. This should feature as part of the supernatural, or at least it should be heavily made over. I didn't actually build it as a World of Darkness game. I used the storyteller system for convenience more than anything else. I wasn't really developing my own game systems at that time. Uh, And it worked well enough. But the second thing I did um, was something that I do strongly attribute to Barker, and that was to make the magic to present the magic in a much more um not only a visceral way but something that could stand up to scientific scrutiny there's not a lot of talk about how vampire physiology for example uh, changes the physical body with a transformation i think Anne rice makes a stab at it talking about how the organs atrophy and liquefy and, and then are flushed out of the vampiric form as waste and the idea that this body becomes a gigantic sponge didn't really want to go that route anyway. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But I like the idea of characters doing autopsies on inhuman corpses. And some of that was directly influenced by Dowd and uh, his staged murder. The first time the characters encountered the uh, alien physiology was when they were um, taking apart one of Lady Diana Spencer's clones on uh, the autopsy table and found that she had a um, uh, she had uh, various alien glands connected to her pancreas and uh, various other parts of the body. Now the actual um, the actual idea I had for the the monsters in this was that they were the Atlantean colonies. Uh, I was very much influenced by a book called Arctos by Jocelyn Godwin, which includes um, Nazi polar myth and all sorts of stuff. But it also was my first uh, introduction to um, Helen Blavatsky and Rani Gwenon, and it talks about. Um, various transformations of the body going through the different races, going from uh, hermaphrodites to the separation of the sexes, the first earthly bodies being formed of gigantic forms because they were poorly conceived, and then being referred to as Atlantean colonies. Some idea of an Atlantean colony was it would be bacterial rather than human scale. A, A colony is something that rides a person. And so the vampire is colonised by a particular breed of Atlantean. And in some ways, I find this a lot more interesting, the idea that 
It's a body that's being totally taken over by a parasite. Much more interesting than, for example, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer example, where you're inhabited by a demon which displaces your soul. And I particularly like it because your scientist characters can cut apart the monsters, take out bits of their alien organs, centrifuge them, pyrolyze them, run them through various tests, and then you can come up with all kinds of lab scenes to talk about what they discovered. Good times. Now, I'm pretty sure I'd never run Department V itself again, even for nostalgia's sake. I mean, that's a, that joke won't get more funny by telling it again. Um, but I have been thinking about, you know, if, if I wanted to write, if I wanted to run another urban fantasy game, how would I go about it? Um, if I wanted to run a another you know, investigative agency game, I'd go about, I would, uh, and if you want to do it, I recommend looking at Conspiracy X 2.0, which is a Unisystem game by Eden Studios. The thing that it does really well is it's got a whole bunch of government agencies listed in for character generation that give different kinds of skills and resources. And then it's got a way of generating a base with shared resources between characters. And I think that is a really nice way of cementing the characters in a sort of, this is our base, this is where we come back to at the end of the mission. But I'm not sure I want to do that anymore. Uh, much as I, I, I do like the sort of X-Files type stuff. But if I was thinking something that's more like a modern fantasy in the Clive Barker reign, it's not going to be the Terrorist. It's not going to be Knights Black Agents. It's not even going to be something like Unknown Armies. I do very much like Unknown Armies that in that it has specific character behaviours codified in it and also the wonderful um, madness and behaviour stuff that it does involving getting hardened to certain kinds of horror. Uh, I think that... That is a better game than Major Ascension, which has this uh, problem of collective identity or characters being identified by what secret society you're a member of. Now, I'm also not particularly interested in the Power by the Apocalypse offerings. I don't think it makes particularly good mystery. I think it do, it's good for an awful lot of things. It's good for action. It's good for interpersonal drama. It's good for politics. For mystery, I, I am yet to be convinced. Let's talk about Urban Shadows, which is the urban fantasy Power by the Apocalypse game. Um... I think it's really well written, and if you want to know how to how to run PBTA games and the philosophy behind it, uh, it's terrific to pick up. Um, I think that it also has exactly the problem about uh, the World of Darkness stuff in that because it identifies all of the playbooks by supernatural attributes, it strips them of all nuance and identity. And I'm, I'm I don't want to be down on on people who like urban fantasy, the Cassandra Clare or Jim Butcher, although I think you're wrong. Um, but it's certainly totally unsuited for the kind of game that I would want to run. If I were going to take a Power by the Apocalypse game, um, I wouldn't even want something like Monster Hearts, which sidesteps the whole um, magical being identity by using it as an analogue for teenage politics. I'd want a Power by the Apocalypse game that did none of that. I wouldn't even want any kind of open-your-brain move. I think, it's, I think it's possible that Power by the Apocalypse just isn't suited for that kind of game. Call of Cthulhu... And similar investigative games, I guess, can be purposed for that kind of thing. But in those cases, the individual spiritual journey is tends to be subordinate to the um, group identity as a bunch of investigators finding out a mystery. So that's not really suitable either. I think if you want to run a fantasy like Imagica or Weave World or whatever, um, 
you do need to have an underlying world that the players can discover. And the game that, that I think might help you do that, and I've I've talked about this game before, is um, Silent Legions by Kevin Crawford, a Sun Nomino game. Now, uh, it is uh, an OSR title. It does have a character class structure. I think you need to do things about that. But the idea of presenting adventures in terms of locations with tags, the idea of designing your magical pantheon from the ground up, um, something which is is going to be quite important when we talk about later parts of the Magicka. Um, all of that gives you the tools to actually design a world that the characters can, can connect to. Um, and because it's your invention, they, they have no canon to draw on. And I think that's a good thing. So yeah, I think that um, Silent Legions has a great deal to offer in terms of pr- that kind of presentation. And if you don't like the game system, well, there's a, you can just take out the whole t- all the tables for generating Kelepoth, the little pocket universes that exist in there, and generating locations and faction management and generating your pantheon of deities and whatever you want to do. Now, a game that does what Imagica does also touches on other worlds, and that's a, a gaping omission in this particular episode. In the next episode, I'm going to talk about Gentleman Pie's journey from the fourth dominion all the way through to the borders of the first at the Eurasia and what they find there. And there are better game systems to help you do that and that actually fit more with the overall tone and philosophy. So for that reason, I'm going to stop here and hope that you'll join me for the next episode. Thanks for listening. Did you like this episode? If so, maybe you could write us a review on iTunes or you could at me at Victorplasm on Twitter or leave a comment on the website which is www.victorplasm.net or join our Facebook group. It's all good. Really appreciate those people who've reached out to give their positive feedback. The music for this podcast is provided by Chris Zabriskie. You can find more of that www.chrissabriskie.com